If you were here in worship last week, you would have seen that we finished out the book of 1 Peter. And so now we are resuming uh, the, our, our preaching through the gospel according to John, which we'll preach from for a while, then take a break for a season, then preach from for a while, and then take a break. And that brings us to John chapter 17 this week. Uh, as, as I was talking to Pastor Blake, even uh, I think at the beginning of this week, I told him this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Uh, it's called Jesus' High Priestly Prayer. And the reason why is because we get a glimpse into Jesus praying for himself, praying for his disciples. Uh, And many older commentators, especially in the Puritans, they would call what we know as the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer. It's a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples but never prayed himself. And he couldn't pray it because he couldn't actually pray, forgive us our debts. Because Jesus didn't have any debts or transgressions or sins, regardless of, you know, however you want to put that word. So they call that one the disciples' prayer, what we just read in the catechism. And they call this the Lord's Prayer. You remember that fad that went around, what would Jesus do? If we ask the question, what would Jesus pray? Here it is. This is what he prays. So we're looking at John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, as Jesus is finishing the upper room discourse with his disciples the night before he is crucified. If you would, please stand and give attention, as this is the very word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you, before the world isted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The main thing that we're going to be looking at today is in verse 3. This is eternal life. 
And even my wife and I both have very interesting stories about our understanding of eternal life. When I was maybe 12 or 13, remember someone describing eternal life as endless golf courses. If you like golf courses, that'd be nice. If you don't like golf and it's a frustrating game, that doesn't sound too great. I remember thinking, that's, that's almost as bad as eternal life being, you know, a room with a hundred cats in it. I mean, there's so many things that we could add to that list. The person who, who told me that she thinks that this is what eternal life is was, was a pastor. I'm so glad that pastor was wrong. Not because I enjoy seeing pastors be wrong, but simply because <laughs> there's better things to do than play golf. Like be in worship. Yeah. Um, or my wife's version of it, which is seven, eight, somewhere around there. One day she set her dad down and said, Dad, you know, I really, I really don't want to go to heaven. It's like, what? Well, yeah. Um, and she goes, well, but I don't want to go to hell either. So, I guess she was saying, I really want to be Catholic. But um, what she said, you know, I don't want to go to heaven because it seems really, really boring. Because all the songs that we sing about, and she was raised in a Baptist church, all the songs that she sings about as a little girl is them walking down the road and singing and praising Jesus. And that's what eternity looks like a slow walk singing. If you're a little kid, that sounds awful. There's a thousand leaves, thousands and tens of thousands of leaves falling from all these trees and they want to run and play in the leaves. The thought of taking a slow walk down a road, hand in hand with Jesus, if you're seven or eight years old, that seems pretty boring. What's interesting is that in today's passage, we have a description of what eternal life is. And I suspect that to many of Jesus' hearers, and even to us, it's really quite surprising. And we'll get there. What we're going to look at is three things, three questions that we want to answer this morning. The first is, what is eternal life. Look at verses 2 and 3. What does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know God in verse 3? And then the last question is, what is glory? What is glory? Looking at verses 4 and 5. So let's start with this question, what is eternal life? 
The first thing that we know is that it's not prolonged life. We can think about a very, very, very long life. And because even the best of us, if we live over a hundred, you're beating the odds 10,000 times to one. When we talk about eternal life, though, that's something altogether different. And it's not merely prolonged life. The way that it's spoken about in Scripture, and we see hints of it here, is that the quality and the quantity of that life is derived from God Himself. So imagine you have an all-perfect God because there is, friend, an all-perfect God. And imagine that that God has lived forever. He had no beginning. He has no ending. Eternal life is being called into His life. It's not something outside of him that exists as if it were a gift that he could bestow. Eternal life looks at God himself. We get those qualities of eternal life from God. And the way that it's specifically spoken of, as you see it there in verse 3, This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Notice notice the tense of this verb, they may know you. This isn't a future, that they will know you. It's just know you. In the same way, you would say, do you know this person over there who works at the bank? They were really great. It's assuming you know them now, not will you meet them in a month or ten years. Knowing God and logically by, by consequence, eternal life is something that happens now. That they may know you. And this is an interesting thing, isn't it? That Jesus says, this is eternal life. And of all the things that he could say, and it's not defined anywhere else in Scripture quite like this. That they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus whom you sent. So what then does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know God? One of the common ways that evangelical churches talk about it is that knowing means being in a relationship with. Right? Being in a relationship with. Like, you have a number of churches that say, I don't believe in religion, I believe in a relationship. Specifically, a relationship with Jesus. And there's a lot of biblical truth to that. 
I think, and you can look in your bulletins, guys, turn to the very page one, and want us to look at this quote from C.S. Lewis, from his book, Mere Christianity. And I think it's appropriate for what we're talking about here. I'll go ahead and read this, if you would, follow along. Good things, as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to, or even into, the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prizes which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty, spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you were not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? I think the implication for this passage this morning is that what does it mean to know God? Knowing God means getting wet, getting into the fountain. It means getting warm, getting near to the fire. I like how Lewis even talks about not just getting near the thing, but into the thing. This is why we see in the New Testament this phrase, in Christ, for those in Christ, anyone in Christ is a new creation. In, in Christ, in Him, appears... 137 times, I believe, in the New Testament. Do you think that's on accident? In salvation, we are being put into the life of God Himself. I'll share an illustration with that in a little bit. But I want us to make a very clear distinction between what knowing God is and what knowing God is not. Knowing God is not the same thing as becoming holier. It's not the same thing as being civil. And by the way, and this is a sermon for another day, but civility and holiness are not the same thing. And I've heard this passage preached in John 17, and maybe you have too, and the takeaway was, well, you have to try harder to know God. Do do you see this impossible hamster wheel on that? Well, I think I know God. You got to try harder to know God. Well, I'm trying harder to know God. Yeah, but you could still know Him more. Well, but I'm trying harder to know Him. At some point, 
that ends and you either, you either know him or you don't. It is a binary. It's one or zero. It's black and white. And even the promise in the Old Testament that they shall all know him from the least of them to the greatest of them. It doesn't matter where you are on your spiritual journey. If you are a Christian, you know him. Because you are known by him. Be very careful when you read this not to import an ounce of effort. It's the way and the reason that you know him is because he knew you first. Even getting back to the analogy of the relationship, you're in a relationship with him because he's in a relationship with you. So what is eternal life? It's knowing God. What does it mean to know God? It means being in a relationship with Him. It means getting wet. Getting in to the fountain. And then their third question for this morning. What is glory? What is glory? We see this in verse 5. It's mentioned five times in this passage, either glory or glorified. This is a word, frankly, Christians may say a lot. I'm not convinced that a whole lot of Christians know what it means. Even the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question and answer number one, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What does it mean to glorify God? Most people, I don't know. Or it's worship Him. That's not what glorified means. If you're a reader, um, there's probably about 200 books on this written from a Reformed or Presbyterian perspective. So my attempt this morning to give an answer to the question, what is glory? Friends, it's going to be truncated. Okay? It's going to be truncated. It's going to be short. It's going to be brief. And it's going to be really just give one aspect. But from 20 years ago, I, like a number of you, have been significantly impacted by the writings of C.S. Lewis. And he has an essay called The Weight of Glory. It's free online. You just type it in. It's, the one that I have is 14 pages, single-spaced. So he tries to answer the question, what is glory? And it takes him 14 pages, single-spaced. Let's see if we can get an answer really quick. What is glory? The first is, glory is being well spoken of of God. Being well spoken of of God. You see this uh, implied in verse 1, 
Father, the hours come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And how that is tied to Jesus in verse 4 saying, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The things that Jesus is doing are causing people to speak well of God, to have God's name exalted. And Jesus here is saying, Father, glorify me. Have my name be exalted. He spent three years in ministry exalting the name of the Father. And now the hours have come for my name to be exalted. So that's the first. The second is, what is glory? I think in this passage, it's, it's hinted at, but not nearly explicit, but glory is being united with beauty. And where do I see that? Before the world existed, God in himself, enjoyed life and glory. I'm going to ask for my family to come up as volunteers. So, could you guys hold hands? Um, this, they represent the Trinity. Um, So, Bonnie will be the father. Eli will be the son, because he's the son. And Lucy uh, will be the Holy Terror. No, I'm sorry. The, the Holy Spirit. So, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, from eternity past, and this is what Jesus is talking about in verse 5, what you have is three persons in one God fellowshipping, lifting each other up, names, their names being spoken well by each other. By get, the, son, the, the Son is getting into the beauty of the Father and the Father of the Spirit, right? So you have a perfect God. By the way, if God were unipersoned, for instance, if it were just Bonnie, you can picture this, from eternity past, there would be an awfully lonely and needy God. Okay? But a triune God in three persons is perfectly happy. The triune God creates an Adam or any man. Okay? Now, how do I get into that? Right? How do I get into that? It takes the redemption planned by all three. But it also requires outward facing. And so the sun, drop your hands, in a way turns his gaze from inside to outside and turns the gaze to me while I was still a sinner, we saw in Romans 5, Christ the Son died for me. And He was raised for me. And Jesus is calling them mine. 
These are his. He is the intercessor for him. That's why this is called the high priestly prayer. And what the priest does is is to take the people and represent them to God. And so what he does is, is wrap his arms around me, turn me, and gets me into the very life of God himself. And not just me, friend anyone who is in Christ, you have been brought in to the intra-Trinitarian life where there is eternal life and there can be no other. Where there is glory and there can be no other. All right. Y'all can sit down. Thank you. That's how God, in a way, gets us into himself. And this isn't pantheism or panentheism. When you get into the intra-Trinitarian life, you don't lose your personality. You don't lose your being. You stay who you are, but you are perfected. Imagine it as if you are looking at a gorgeous painting. It's one thing to behold its beauty. It's another thing to get really close. It would be something altogether different for you to become, to come into the painting. Because if you were to come into the painting, you wouldn't just merely be you, you would be stylized like the original artist intended so that you would fit with the painting. In the same way, if you wanted to get into the fountain, you would get wet because that's what fountains do. They get things wet. If you get close or even into the fire, you get very warm because that's what fires do. If you want to get close and you want to get into God, you get life and glory because God can do no other. So Jesus talking about the glory which we had before the world began. Friends, this kicks off the rest of his prayer as he prays for them to come into the life that he has with the Father. And being united with beauty, just quickly, one of the most difficult places for little children to go, I believe, is not church. It's museums. Why? Why? Because they're not allowed to touch anything. Right? For those of you who have been to art museums, have sculptures or, or galleries or whatever it might be, if it's really, really nice, you know, there's gl- some sort of glass or protection over it, there are those felt ropes around it, and what do the kids want to do? Climb under the ropes. Go to it. Why do you think they want to do that? 
you and I, for years and years, we have been conditioned by rules that we know that that's not respectable. That in some ways we fear jail, even on a minor misdemeanor. What do the kids want to do? They want to get close to beauty. Why do you think they want to touch the sculpture? Why do you think they want to touch the painting? Or even get super close and look at it? It's not because that they're children and merely that they're acting childish. It's that they have, a, they have the vestige of the image of God and you and I were made to get close to that which is beautiful. Sir, so if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, the way to become your most true and full self is to get as close as you can and even into that which is most beautiful. And the only way you can get in is through the Son and His death and His resurrection. Now close this morning. From C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory, At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of mourning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, we shall get in. If you know Jesus, you have eternal life. But what will be revealed to us about what that means is so much more than we could fathom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is the door. He is the gate. He is the gatekeeper. And that through his perfect life, substitutionary death, and his resurrection, we have access into your very life. Help us to ruminate on that and to be changed, we pray in his name. Amen. Now, friends, just as a reminder, you can put these cards and you can put your ties, including any final roots ties, in the box in the back. We're so thankful that even in the midst of a pandemic, uh, you guys have been so generous and that the Lord has provided for our body in that way.